Stephanie. That got me going. (laughs) Good to be with you once again. Those of you that weren't here on Sunday night. Was it Sunday night when we started? Okay, Sunday night. Uh, Good to have you with us here today. And those of you that were here Sunday night, good to be back with you once again. Uh, Something in that song, uh, when he's four days late, he's still on time. I'm going to be talking about how does the kingdom come. And it kind of relates to that song in the sense we all want that kingdom to come. And we're anticipating it. And we want it so bad that sometimes we forget God is deciding when to bring that kingdom on this earth. That it's up to Him to decide that hour and that day when that kingdom will finally come. And we've got to be patient. We've got to be doing what the gospel accounts tell us to do each and every day and not worry as much about exactly when it's coming Because are we doing what we need to be doing before it comes, I think is more important to us as Christians. What Maury was talking about a moment ago, being vulnerable, being open, giving and receiving that love with each other, becoming more love, which is what God wants in that future kingdom. But having said all that, there are scriptures that tell us to watch, are there not? Turn with me to Luke chapter 11 and verse 2. Luke 11 and verse 2. Notice what it says here as we begin this discussion. Luke 11 and 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So again, this sample prayer, this sample way of praying that that Jesus is teaching his disciples about, right at the beginning of it, He says, when you're praying, one of the major things you want to be praying about is your kingdom come. That's that's huge. That's giant when it comes to what we should be doing and thinking about in this world and talking about in this world. So no doubt about it, we want that kingdom to come. Christ told us to pray about that kingdom coming But remember, in that prayer, there are a lot of other things that are mentioned too. Uh, No doubt the kingdom message was very important. So when we think about the kingdom coming and having that kingdom come, I'd like you to also turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And remember, as this dialogue begins in Matthew 24, the disciples are asking Jesus... When will the end be? How will the end come? Jesus didn't necessarily go around with this message, this is how the end is going to come. Be aware of this, that. He talked a little about that, and the prophets talk about that, and other books talk about that, but Jesus' message was about this gospel of the coming kingdom and all that that entails. So in Matthew 24 and verse 3, it says this, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. 
And you can read on in there. We've all read it before. But what does he say? Watch out. Have an awareness. Be awake. Because there's going to be deception about how all this comes about. And so I want to make this warning to the church. Let's be careful of how secure or sure we are about exactly how it's all going to come about. All right? Now, having said that, that little disclaimer up front, let's look at the state of things today in the world. Are there any trends? Are there any ideas that we can connect to the Bible that we need to be conscious of and aware of going forward? And again, let me let me preface this by saying, I don't know exactly what it is that brings it about. That's part of the answer to my question, how does the kingdom come? Okay? But there definitely are some ideas the Bible gives us about things to acknowledge, be aware of, watch out for when the time of the end is near. So let's let's take a look at a couple things. Now, Adrian got into this a little bit yesterday, and it's a huge subject, and I can't do it justice with 50 to 60 minutes, but I will address this, this aspect of it. The idea that the Christians in the world today, and when I speak of that, I'm, I'm speaking predominantly of those countries that have pushed the gospel message to the world more so than any other countries in the world in the history of Christianity. And, and when we think of those countries, we're thinking of countries like Canada, the United States, Australia, the United Kingdom, New Zealand. There's no doubt that in history, when you look at evangelism, when you look at putting money into moving the gospel message around the world, there is no doubt, you cannot argue with me, that those countries have predominantly pushed the message of this book. Now, do they have it completely correct? None of us have it completely correct. And many of those evangelists and many of those teachers have missed some important things about this book, but there's no doubt that they've pushed this book that we have in our hands right now to this world in a way that no other peoples have especially with the technology that is available to us today. Now, keeping that in mind, I want to go back into the Old Testament for a moment as I bring up one example of things to look towards in the future. And turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 2. Because we know there's duality in some scripture. There are stories in the Old Testament. We find some connection in the New Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 2, I want to build my case here for a moment. 1 Kings 8 and verse 2. We are at the zenith of Israel in the Old Testament. Under David and under Solomon, Israel as a nation was at its zenith. It wasn't going to get better for Israel in Old Testament times than it was when David and Solomon were leading the nation. 
Solomon is about to dedicate the temple, and he does it at an important time in their calendar. He does it right before the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice this in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 2. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. Now, which festival in the seventh month? Just to make it clear, turn to verse 65 of this same chapter so we know which festival this was. Verse 65 of 1 Kings chapter 8. And it says here in verse 65, let me read it to you. So Solomon observed the festival at that time and all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebo, Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt. They celebrated it before the Lord our God for seven days and seven days more, 14 days in all. Now, I'm not advocating a 14-day feast, okay? They celebrated for seven days because of the dedication of the temple that they were now dedicating. The temple was finally built. They were dedicating at the time, the most significant time maybe of the year, when the Feast of Tabernacles was occurring. So they they had this celebration for 14 days, seven days for the temple, and then seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's no doubt of the time frame here, and the commentators agree with that. Now notice this. In this same chapter, verses 41 through 43, there's an interesting uh, statement made here. Chapter 8, 1 Kings, verses 41 through 43. Now this is Israel, right? They're at their zenith. Notice something interesting in this chapter. Verse 41, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. As for the foreigner. Now, if you read the whole chapter, which I don't have time to do right now, Solomon is telling God, you know, uh, we want to follow you. We want to do right. Uh, We're dedicating this temple for you. You know, he's going on and on in this prayer to God. And in this prayer, notice what he says here. Verse 41, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, Adrian got into a little bit of that yesterday, but has come from a distant land because of your name. Listen to that for a minute. The foreigner hears of this YHWH. The land of Israel follows this different God. And they come to find out about this God. Because every people had their own God. So they come to Israel. And what's he saying? When the foreigner comes, because we've got a great kingdom right now. We are thriving because of you. When the foreigner comes to check this out, as, as the Queen of Sheba came, right? Didn't the Queen of Sheba come to Solomon? You know, you know the story. As the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. So they see the blessings on Israel. And they want to check this thing out. Does that ring of anything in the present? I live in the United States, and we've got some problems there right now. And we've got people who want to come into the United States, which is great. The United States takes people from everywhere in the world. Canada takes people from everywhere in the world. 
They make our country strong. But we've got to follow the rule of law. This Bible tells us that. Our country was set up on the rule of law. That through law, you live life. You don't have anarchy. So notice what is said here. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Isn't that a great dedication he's making? It's not only for Israel, it's for everybody. And that's what the kingdom's all about, is it not? That we can all have this stupendous, magnificent life. If what? We follow that God. If we're obedient to that God. It's interesting that the foreigner is mentioned here. The Feast of Tabernacles is coming up in this instance here, in this history. And he's talking about the foreigner. This is, this is an allusion to the kingdom. This is a, a thought that Solomon, I think, is having of what's to come and what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. And he makes this statement in this dedication right before the Feast of Tabernacles. I had not really seen this before as I was studying for this message. And I, I just wanted to bring that out in the scripture here. But notice what else he says. And this is very important. In verse 46, I want to pick it up once again. When they sin against you, and he's speaking of his people now, he's going back to his dedication now, he's moving on to another subject. When they sin against you, speaking of Israel, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive, to his own land, far away or near. Notice that, far away or near. There were different places they could go captive to. Verse 47, And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors, and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you, with all their heart and soul, in the land of their enemies who take them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of the land of Egypt out of that iron smeltering furnace. Now that's great news, folks. That's great news that this is a forgiving God. This is a God of mercy that you serve. 
when you mess up, you repent and you can come back. That's great to know. Now, thinking about this, this is the apex of Israel. Solomon is king. What happens after Solomon is king? Solomon has his issues, folks. Okay, he starts to drift a bit. All right? And what happens? The kingdom is split. There's Judah, and then there's the northern ten tribes of Israel. And we know that the history was never the same again. Never the same again. But were all those Abrahamic blessings there at this time? Were all the blessings that Moses heard about there at this time? They were there in a sense. But were they there completely? We argue that they were not. And that's another sermon I cannot get into right now. But I'm looking at what to look for in the future here. And I want to make a connection to today with ancient Israel and Judah of the Old Testament. And I think you know where I'm going with this. I've hinted at it already, but turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. We aren't going to get into all the details of this because we don't have the time, but there are a couple significant scriptures that will bring home my point, regardless of how well we understand the details of this or not, okay? But there's something to this. Galatians 3.29, this connection to today and, and who is spiritual Israel today. Of course, it's Christians. Galatians 3.29, let's go ahead and read this. If you belong to Christ, please, please hear this. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I want you to get that and never forget it. If you are, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. In a spiritual sense, no doubt about it. The Bible's clear on this point. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, let's make sure we, we reiterate this. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. Get this now. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. So that physical nation of Israel and Judah was encompassed with Judah also. The Gentiles, through the gospel are heirs just like physical Israel and Judah were. That's what the New Testament message is about. The New Covenant message is about. Part of what it's about. Members together of one body. One body. One bo- Now, we might have different opinions, different ideas. When you think of physical Jews today... They're still worshiping the God of the Old Testament, the same God you and I are worshiping, but they're missing, they're missing a big part of it without Christ, are they not? Well, aren't we still one body? Those are still His people. Those are still, in fact, all people of the world are His people when you really study the whole book. He's using a plan and a method to get all people there 
And it's his plan and his method. Don't worry about it. Why it's this way or that way. Or what all the nuances of it are. Because we can't know all of that. But he's got a plan and a purpose in a way that he's going to get this done. Do what you got to do. Know your role in this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, it says, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So yeah, there comes a promise with Christ. You believe Christ, you follow Christ, you get eternal life through His death. That's part of this new message, that this nuance to the, the message that had been coming from back when Abraham was around. But everybody from Abraham on through is all connected in some way. They're all connected in some way. As it says here, they're all one. Now, if we are Abraham's seed, let's go back for a moment to Genesis just to get something clear here. What does it mean that we're heirs like Abraham? What does it mean that we're Abraham's seed? I want you to make sure you understand this. And again, there's a lot of detail and nuance we can't get into in this message, but understand that in a general sense right now, notice Genesis chapter 17 and verse 19. This is God speaking to Abraham. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And what did we read in the New Testament? That we are heirs of Abraham. If we're part of this covenant relationship with Christ. It doesn't matter if you were physically a Jew or physically an Israelite. It's all one now. We're connected in some way. There's no doubt about that from Scripture. And what does that also entail? Because we come down to Moses and, and God gives more direction to Moses about This story that begins with Abraham. And he gives more detail to Moses about it. And let's turn to Deuteronomy 28. And again, there's a lot to this story, folks, but I'm giving you a general understanding here today because of the message I want to bring. Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and cursings chapter. Always like going back to this. Because anyone who claims that mantle of Israel... Whether you're thinking of it from a physical standpoint or a spiritual standpoint. This is part of it. Right here. Deuteronomy 28. Blessings for obedience. If, if, that's a big word. Big two letter word. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow. And then you can read down through verse 14 of what comes for your obedience. Oh, they are great material blessings, physical blessings that you will receive, that Israel received to some degree, but not completely. But what happens in verse 15? Deuteronomy 28. 
However, if you don't obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees, I'm giving you today, these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Now, in a physical sense, what happened to Israel and Judah? And why did it happen? What did the prophets say? You guys are messing up. Turn back to Him, or trouble is on your doorstep. And what happened? They went down. They went down hard. They went down fast. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, destroyed the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. But folks, who has the mantle of Abraham today? Who claims from a worldly sense a physical sense, to be the followers of this new covenant leader, Jesus Christ, today. Who is the most predominant Christian nation in the world? Not only with numbers, it is with numbers, I should say. The United States has more Christians than any other nation in the world. If you read our Constitution, it talks about a Creator endowing us with rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those values and those principles, as imperfect as we've been as a country, no doubt we've had our imperfections, but who's, who helped save this world from despotism when Hitler was going to take over? Who helped stop the Soviet Union from infiltrating more countries with a belief in no God, that the state rules, that the state is in charge? You think God wanted those isms, Nazism and communism, to infiltrate this world and take this world over? Of course not. Yes, the United States is imperfect. No doubt about it. But who holds that mantle today, even if they aren't even sure that they hold it? The most predominant Christian nation in the world, the United States. The most predominant evangelical nation in the world from the standpoint of providing the world with the most information about the gospel message. Look it up. I've done the research. More evangelists came out of the United States than any other country in the world. And along with our brothers and sisters in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, we have pushed that message to the world. But here's a problem. Here's a problem. We just read it in the Bible. If you claim that mantle, if you say we are Christian or we were Israel, And we follow this God. When you stop following Him, it's going to end. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be a reckoning that comes. Let me give you some statistics. I gave you a few Sunday night, and I was thinking off the top of my head. I have the actual statistics in front of me right now. In the 1950s in the United States, 95% of people that you would ask in the United States, what religion are you? 95% would say, I'm a Christian. 95%. In 19, or in 2007, 78% 
asked that same question, now said they were Christian. Get this. In 2014, only seven years later, seven years later, we go from 78% to 70%. When you ask someone in the United States, what religion are you? 70% would claim to be a Christian. Now, when I say claim to be a Christian, that doesn't mean they're attending church on a regular basis. That doesn't mean they believe in the Sabbath and holy days. They just claim to be a Christian, down to 70% from 78% in seven years. United Kingdom, I'll give you a figure from 2011, 59% in the United Kingdom claimed to be Christians in 2011. In 2018, that number is down to 53%. In Canada, I didn't have as many statistics But they say in 2011, 67% of Canadians claimed to be Christian in 2011. Australia, 52% in 2016. New Zealand, 2013, 47% claimed to be Christian. But I have a statistics from 2018. New Zealand just did a new census. 47% in 2013, 2018 in New Zealand, 39% claim to be Christian in New Zealand today. Now, that's the smallest of these countries. But that country started similar to Canada, Australia, the United States, in the thoughts of people who emigrated to those countries. Is that not interesting? Things are trending downward dramatically, folks. So when we look out on the horizon for how does that kingdom come, I believe it has to do with the demise of the United States as a power in the world. Because I'll tell you something. I worked in Washington, D.C. for 33 33 plus years. I was in the government. Okay, And what I've seen over those 33 years sickens me. And this is on all sides of the political spectrum. It's getting ridiculous. The bickering, the fighting, the infighting. And when you're fighting each other, how can you do great works? How can you do great works when you're fighting each other? What happened to Israel? They split apart, did they not? If Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And what happened after that? Soon it was the end of them as nations. What should we be looking towards that could bring this kingdom about? And again, I say that with caution. But if we claim the mantle of the Abrahamic covenant in a spiritual sense, And we've had these principles and values all of our history. You can't deny that. You can't deny. As much as people are trying to deny it today, you can't deny the origins of these countries. But they're moving away from those origins at a dramatic pace. And what does the Bible say? When you don't have Him as your lead anymore... You're going down. And you're going down hard. 
And that's a message we need to bring to our peoples. As much as they don't want to hear it, as much as it's going to cause concern for us to put that message out there, it's the truth according to this book. It's the truth according to this book. Revelation 12, 17. Another little point to keep in mind on this particular example that I'm giving you right now. Notice Revelation 12 and 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now the reason I want to use that scripture, Revelation is setting up how it's all going to come down in very symbolic manner. So we need to be careful, especially in the book of Revelation. But here's something that, that we can take literally. Those who are keeping the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We as a church continue to do that. Come hell or high water, we will continue to do that. And that makes us unique and different. And in the United States and Canada today and Australia, you can still worship the Lord and keep those commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. But here's what I'm telling you. As, as our nations become less and less Christian, will that hold? Will we still be able to hold to the commandments and the testimony of Jesus? Which says what? It says things that are diametrically opposed to what this world is telling us today. It says things that are not politically correct today. Laws are being created. I know they're in Canada. There's some in the U.S. that are being created that fly in the face of the testimony of Jesus. So get ready. I don't know when it'll happen. I, I've been in this 30-some years now. And when I first got into it, I thought it was right around the corner. But then I realized the world operates in a different way than Mike James can understand. So always remember, God's going to bring it out in His own way, in His own time. Don't get caught up too much in the details and the exactness of it. Because when you focus on that, you lose focus of how you're supposed to be living your life each and every day. How you're supposed to be treating each and every person in this world that God is trying to save. Don't lose that focus. Watch, be aware but don't let that become the primary thing that you're spending your time on. God's going to take care of that. You take care of you, your household, your church, those that you can take care of and live the way you're supposed to live. But how much longer will it be before Satan really comes after those commandment keepers and those who are keeping the testimony of Jesus? In the United States today, you can still, you can still speak and say whatever's in this Bible. And people are not going to stop you from saying it. But when the dragon comes, he's coming hard, folks. He's coming hard. And things could change just like this. Do you remember 2008? There was all, almost, 
an economic meltdown that would have been global. It was real. Read the books about it. It was close. It was close. So yeah, when I look at the U.S. 3.5 unemployment, that's the best it's been all my life. That's incredible. 3.5 unemployment? That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous for my lifetime. I've never seen unemployment that low in the United States. The economy is still strong right now. The U.S. still has a powerful military today. But I'm going to talk about that in a minute. We still are at our zenith. And under David and Solomon, Israel stayed at a zenith for a number of years. But then they started to slowly go downhill. And once they were going downhill, it started to go a little bit faster. Started to go a little bit faster. Now let's talk a little bit about that economic aspect of things. During the Great Depression in the United States, and I know the numbers were similar in Canada, there were 25% of the population that wanted to work was out of work. Think about that for a minute. 25% of the population was out of work. So when I say 3.5% today in the U.S., that's a big difference. Things, things look good right now, but, but looks can always be deceiving. But keep that in mind for this reason. Many times we jump at, oh my goodness, it's 10% unemployment. That doesn't mean it can go back down to 3%. So, so those types of things, be aware of that. Don't worry about what's happening from that standpoint. But let me talk about the economy for a minute. The U.S. has that powerful economy. The dollar is prominent throughout the world as a currency. The stock markets in the U.S. have the power throughout the world. But there's something coming on the horizon. It's just out there over the hills. It's called artificial intelligence. How many of you have heard of AI? Now, here's the interesting thing about artificial intelligence. What, what is this? It's a, it's a recreating of human intelligence within machines. That's a dictionary definition. Recreating human intelligence in machines. Now, what will that do in the future to the economies of the world? A little bit more about AI. It's a process or set of rules. This is what an algorithm is, I should say. An algorithm is a process or set of rules that are followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer. And what folks are doing today in, in various industries is they are creating these algorithms and putting them into machines so the machines will operate as if a human is operating the machine. One example driverless cars. We're almost there, folks. We're almost there, okay? We actually have cars that are driving on highways. I know they're in the U.S., okay? They're testing them right now where the car is being driven by itself, by a computer in the car. It is stopping. It is starting. It is, is moving to the side. It is getting in different lanes. It is keeping people from having accidents, although there are some accidents with them. But here's the point I want to make about this artificial intelligence. It's not only going to be used in that industry. Think of truck driving. 
Think of Uber. Think of Lyft. All these industries, taxi drivers, where cars can now be taking over from humans. There will be new jobs that come from the artificial intelligence industries, but many jobs will be lost. There's going to be a tremendous turnover in the economy as we get into AI. But AI is not just for the car industry. It's for all kinds of service industries. Accounting, banking, food service. Machines will be taking over. Why? Because companies need the money. And it's less expensive to have a machine doing this because you don't have to pay them health benefits. You don't have to pay them Social Security. So AI is, is the wave of the future in all economies all over the world. And the reason for it is because now, with our computers today, you've got it right here. You've got a more powerful computer here than some of the technology that was in some of the early NASA rockets, believe it or not. Believe it or not. You all hold one of these. Just about everybody does. It's amazing when you think of how technology has advanced. The problem is we're making that into a God today. But due to all this amount of data that we can now put into machines, the machines can become much smarter to do all these duties, to do all these jobs that before humans have done. And here's, here's the kicker of all this. You think the United States is, is up there in this AI, right? And it is, it is. So is Canada. So are some Western European nations like the UK. They are the ones that started the AI ideas back in the 50s, okay? But here's what you might not know. That China is going to usurp the U.S.'s lead in this area in the future very soon, if not right now, according to some experts in this field. According to some experts. And I will cite the book by one of these experts called AI Superpowers. And I want to read you a couple quotes from this book. The author of this book is a Chinese man named Kai Fu Li, who studied in the U.S., worked at Google, worked at Apple. He knows all of the tech giants in the U.S. and has worked for them. But he also went back to China and created startups in China that mimicked what was going on in the U.S. And here's what he says coming from both worlds about AI in the future. Let me read you a couple quotes. Until about five years ago, it made sense to directly compare the progress of China and U.S. Internet companies as one would describe a race. They were on roughly parallel tracks, and the United States was slightly ahead of China. But around 2013, China's Internet took a right turn. Rather than following in the footsteps or outright copying of American companies, Chinese entrepreneurs began developing products and services with simply no analog in Silicon Valley. Analysts describing China used to invoke simple Silicon Valley-based analogies when describing Chinese companies. The Facebook of China, the Twitter of China. But in the last few years, in many cases, these labels stopped making sense. The Chinese Internet had morphed into an alternate universe. 
These recent and powerful developments naturally tilt the balance of power in China's direction. But on top of this natural rebalancing, China's government is also doing everything it can to tip the scales. And it goes on to say that local governments in China, the national government in China, is putting tons of resources and money into AI industry in China to try to take the lead. The United States is not spending that amount of money on the AI industries in the U.S. We leave it up to our entrepreneurs to come up with financing themselves. So in other words, what he's saying is the Chinese entrepreneurs have an advantage going into this future of AI. And with that advantage, as these industries begin to take over, there is another quote in the book that talks about the money that will result from this. PricewaterhouseCoopers estimates AI deployment will add $15.7 trillion to global gross domestic product by 2030. China is predicted to take home $7 trillion of that total, nearly double North America, being the United States and Canada's, $3.7 trillion in gains. So according to the experts, by 2030, the Chinese will double how much they're gaining from the AI industries they are pushing as opposed to what the United States and Canada are able to bring up from their AI industries. Again, the United States is up there at the apex right now, but as we look out into the future, look at that future trend. Again, things can change, but I want to mention another book talking about the U.S. military, the most powerful military the world has ever seen, right? Mention something that happened in 2014. In the U.S. Air Force, there are people who watch the skies and see what the Chinese and the Russians put up there. And in 2014, one day, some men in the Air Force were watching this Russian satellite that went up into space, and it jettisoned one piece, then another piece, and so there were these pieces in space just sitting there. And so we watch these things continuously because here's why. All of a sudden, a few days later, one of these pieces that seemed dormant came to life. And it floated through space to some very important U.S. satellites and flew around them within a thousand feet. These are some of our, our most precious satellites that control our GPS, control our communication, control our industries on Earth. It flew a thousand feet around this satellite. You know what it was, ladies and gentlemen? It's what's called a killer satellite. The Chinese and Russians both have two satellites in space today that if they wanted to, they could go to a U.S. satellite and destroy it. Now here's the kicker. The U.S. does not have that type of satellite in space as we speak right now. Remember Mr. Trump came up with his Space Force idea? You may have heard it on the news here within the last year or so. We've got to get a Space Force going. You know why they got to get a Space Force going in the U.S.? Because of what I just told you. Russia and China are ahead of us in killer satellite technology. If you want to read more about it, get the book The Shadow War by Jim Shuto. 
He's a correspondent on CNN, and you will learn the details of this. But, but let me just give you a little bit about this. The newly deployed kamikaze satellites disable the country's most essential nuclear early warning and surveillance satellites. In a worst-case scenario, a broad-based attack creates enough wreckage to render orbits unusable for years. With the loss of satellites, the effects in the civilian world become more comprehensive. The financial markets, with trades dependent on time hacks provided by the military's constellation of GPS satellites, have been paralyzed and shut down. The Internet stops altogether. Business comes to a halt as credit cards and bank machines become useless. Traffic lights and railroad signals, also timed by GPS, default to red, bringing transport to a standstill. Now, this comes from experts knowing about this. This comes from books that have been written like Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war where the ability to disable satellites in space could disable our world as we know it. Now, America's greatest strength is those satellites in space. That's how we fight the wars of today. That's how we know where the terrorists are. When those satellites are disabled, I've heard generals quoted as saying we're in big trouble. Today, China and Russia can paralyze the United States from space, disabling the most powerful military in the world and bringing America's civilian population to a standstill. Both Beijing and Moscow have tested and deployed weapons capable of depriving the United States of a whole host of technologies the public and private sector depend on. As a result, even veterans of the U.S. Space Command acknowledge the United States has not adequately addressed the danger and therefore risks of falling behind in this area of weaponry. Now, why did the U.S. fall behind? Because in 2000, 2001, the terrorists struck on 9-11, and a great majority of our effort and resources was put into fighting the terrorists while the Russians and Chinese put their money into these areas and have overtaken us in those areas. People tell me, oh, the United States has the most powerful military. The United States has the greatest economy. Yes, that's true. But did you know what I just told you right now? That if Russia and China wanted to, they could do a lot of damage to our satellites in space that we can't do to them right now. Now, we could send nuclear weapons over there, and that probably stops them from doing anything. And they know that if they disable those satellites, that things go bad for them on Earth also. So we have that equality there. But the point I'm trying to make is when I say, in the future, I see the demise of the United States because we have the mantle of Christianity and we're not following our God anymore. I see examples like this that are happening today. Today, as we speak, of capabilities that could bring these countries that we both live in to their knees. To their knees. Today.
Not tomorrow, folks. Right now. Something to think about. One last point about that. The Chinese Navy had 163 ships in 2000. The U.S. Navy had 226. In 2016, the Chinese Navy had another 183 ships. The U.S. had 188. In 2030, according to U.S. planners and Chinese planners, this is out there, you can read about it. In 2030, the People's Liberation Army Navy, China's Navy, will have 260 ships. The U.S. Navy in 2030 will have 199. Now, U.S. capabilities in their ships are, are much better than the Chinese right now. But as I said, the Chinese are catching up at a rapid pace with technological capability in war fighting. Enough about the U.S. and the demise, possibly, of our countries. Let's look at globalism quickly. Revelation 13 and verse 17. One scripture I will take here. Revelation 13 and 17. Notice what it says, Revelation 13 and 17. So that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. No one. This is a global economy in the future that brings about the end. How does that come? How do we get to a global economy? Folks, it's happening right now. Listen to this quote from the book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree by Thomas Friedman. England you worried about. Japan you worried about, but not Thailand. But today, so many more countries are part of what is for practical purposes considered the global economy. Their performances can affect our country, and it takes a lot of time and energy to deal with the ramifications of that. The point of what this author is saying is, we're so tied together technologically, all the markets, that it's becoming a one global economy. What happens in China affects the U.S. What happens in the U.S. affects other nations. Even small nations like Thailand now affect the economy of the globe. And it's becoming more and more interconnected. Watch that as we move into the future. In history, there have been 10,000 world languages. Today, it's down to 6,000. Only 300 of those languages are spoken by a million or more people. Experts say within the next hundred years, half of all those languages will be gone. What happened at the Tower of Babel? They had one language, did they not? And God confused their languages. We're getting to the other end of the spectrum now. We're losing languages in this world. We're becoming more integrated, more one. Isn't it interesting? But it's one in a deficient way. Who's the leader of making the world one in this way? Satan the devil. God wants the world to be one, but under his terms. Satan is leading the world to one because he's a, he's a masquerader. He does what God does, but in the wrong way. He's bringing the world to a oneness, but in the wrong way. It's not God's oneness. The world is becoming more integrated and one. Finally, peace and security. Right before the end, remember, it seems like there will be peace and security. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
and verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, he's talking about the end, folks. We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers... You, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. Now, you might say, well, 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 Christians are going to know this. Christians are going to know when Christ comes. Folks, what do most evangelicals believe? They believe that they're going to be ferreted off to heaven before the end comes. So they're going to be waiting for that to happen, and it's not going to happen. We know different, don't we? We won't be fooled. It's going to come on many like a thief in the night. But notice these words, peace and safety. Peace and safety. It seems like there will be the signs of peace and safety, but then suddenly destruction. So watch the nation of Israel. Watch the Middle East. Because there is no peace and safety there right now. Okay, if there should be a Palestinian-Israeli agreement of some sort, that they are at peace with each other, that is a radical difference from what we've had in history. Watch something like that. But let me assure you, there is not peace and safety in the Middle East right now. And that is the, the location of where these prophets are speaking about the, the Middle East. So, so watch that. Also remember Luke 21 and 20. Another significant thing to remember about the end of this age. Luke 21 and 20. Luke 21 and 20. And this plays into that peace and safety I was talking about. Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know its desolation is near. Now, right now, the Israeli military is the most powerful military in the Middle East. They can take care of themselves. They have nuclear weapons. But should you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, how would that come about, you say? The Israeli army would have to go away. They wouldn't let people get that close to them with armies, right? Unless, unless some type of peace agreement had been made. Could those armies be benevolent in some way around Jerusalem at the end? I don't know. I'm just speculating. But armies have to be around Jerusalem before the end. And the Israeli military today would not allow that to happen. So watch politics in Israel. Watch the connections between Israel and the countries around them. Is there peace and safety in those? There isn't right now. (laughs) It's about as bad as it can get right now. But watch that. Watch that. Now, concluding things, Revelation 17, 12 and 13. I don't have time to go there, but it talks about this new superpower in the world, and we can bring that back to Daniel 11 and verse 40, and I will go there, but I'm not going to read too much for lack of time. But notice in Daniel 11 and verse 40, and you can tie this in with some things in Revelation, but in Daniel 11:40, 40, notice what it says. 
at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him. So at the time of the end. No issues as to what it's talking about there when we get to verse 40 of Daniel. Earlier in Daniel 11, it's a little bit different. But once you get to Daniel verse uh, chapter 11, verse 40, it talks about a king of the north and a king of the south. Now, where are they in relation to Jerusalem? North and south, okay? Let me ask you this question. Where's the king of the west? Where's the king of the west? It's not mentioned here, is it? There is no king of the west. Where is the United States in relation to Jerusalem? It is west. But we're not mentioned at all, are we? Why is that? Why is there no king of the west that is significant at the time of the end? Might have something to do with what we were talking about earlier. But remember this concept of a king of the north and a king of the south. I'm not going to speculate on countries or peoples. But at this time in history, earlier in Daniel, it was a geographical location north of Jerusalem and south of Jerusalem that these kings came from. There are, there are a number of possibilities there. I won't speculate, but just remember the general idea of a king of the north and a king of the south are going to go against each other right at the time of the end. Another general idea to keep in mind. But but here's what I want you to keep more in mind, folks. It's in Mark chapter 1 as I conclude. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. Every once in a while we need to have these types of sermons. But more of my sermons are of a different variety. But these, these types of sermons are needed. But let me what I, tell you what I want you to focus on. It's right here in Mark chapter 1 as we're speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles here. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Folks, that's what you got to focus on. The good news. Don't worry too much about the bad news is coming. Focus on the good news and getting the message of the good news to a dying world. 